There were three days that shook the world to our core, impacting all of humanity at the time in the past, presently, and even for our future children. Most people are familiar with the account of Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. But what really happened in the three days between these two events? The Bible reveals Jesus had a very specific mission, needing to be in certain locations beneath the earth, on its surface, and in the throne room of heaven in order to complete the vision for all of eternity. Join us now as we dig deep into the actions and meanings of Jesus' three days between crucifixion and resurrection. I am Mark Russick, and you are listening to The Russick Outlook. As always, just my opinion. Hello, everybody. My name is Mark Russick. You're watching and listening to The Russick Outlook. Thank you so much for joining. Today's topic, the three days that shook the world. What really happened? What am I referencing? The three most important days in world history, bar none, not even close. And we're going to focus in on what those three days are or were and what transpired and the significance of it, because not only did it have such a, a, a or weigh so much in, in terms of what happened at the time, but it impacts you today. It impacts me today. It impacts our future, not only here on earth, but for all of eternity. What am I talking about? The crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But everybody, well, I shouldn't say everybody, but a lot of teachings, they, they focus, and, and rightly so, on the, the importance of the crucifixion and the importance of the resurrection. I'm going to take a little bit of a different look at this. I'm going to try to concentrate on what happened in those three days in between. Very rarely do you hear uh, or learn about what, what, what went on. And I will say that according to Scripture, Jesus had several missions given to him by the Father. And, and you know, you, you can kind of gloss over, and I think some people might gloss over, well, you know, they go from Good Friday right to Resurrection Sunday. But there's a lot that happened. There's a lot that transpired. It's not like Jesus said, okay, or Jesus went to sleep and woke up or, you know, however you want to think about it. But so I, 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 I just think it would be a great exercise. And because also this information is covered in the Bible. Uh, scripture and the Word and outside resources have a lot to say about it. So this, this topic is, is really so, so vast and rich and deep. I need to break this down into two sections. So this first part, we're going to get into, you know, the foundation, the crucifixion itself, and we're going to get into the evidence of the resurrection. We're going to look at not only Scripture, we're going to go outside of the Bible. We're going to go to outside resources, um, both Christian and non-Christian, um, and, and, and eyewitness testimonies and so forth. And then I'm going to kind of delve into where are the dead today? Where, you know, where are our loved ones today? Where are people from the past today? Uh, because again, Scripture is very clear, and, and I don't know that a lot of people really kind of, you know, I don't want to say a deep dive, but I, I, I don't know how far they've looked into it because I think, and it's only my opinion, when we say heaven and we say hell, a lot of times it's kind of casual. Heaven is the, woo, you know, the angels, bad falsetto, sorry. Um, and, and, and hell is just that. But there's, there, there's, a, lot of, there's a lot of layers to it. I'll, I'll, I'll put it that way. So that's what I'd like to, to get into. 
Uh, let me pause real quick. If you don't mind, if you appreciate information like this, please hit the like and the subscribe button that, that you see on whatever platform you're on, whether you're watching us on YouTube or some of the podcast platforms. Uh, please do that. And if you have questions or comments, engage. If you like the information, uh, share it with others. You know, let let people know. Let's let's get some feedback on it. I I often say iron sharpens iron. You know, I, I I'm so grateful for some of the inf- some of the information that's come back to me from you and, and others like you out there, who has pointed things out to me in the past and said, hey, you know, were you aware of this person's study or you know or this translation and, and so forth. So it's 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 really been great. So I you know I would appreciate that. Uh, and then last but not least, uh, if you wouldn't mind, please join our email list. Go to the rusticoutlook.com, sign up. We we don't do anything with it outside of notifying you when new things are coming up, new topics are coming up. Uh, there's a lot in store that we have coming down the road very shortly, so you'll want to know about that. There's going to be some live streaming. We do some interactive uh, stuff with Zoom, some study presentations where you you know you provide a lot of that feedback. So you know we we, we you know we're slowly growing. So it's 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 been exciting. Um, and again, we just notify you of when these events happen. But let, let me I digress. Let me get into this. So we're going to be talking about. Uh, the three, like I said, the three days that shook the world, what really happened? And I have to begin with, you know, obviously the crucifixion itself. So I'm going to look at Matthew. I'm going to touch a little bit here on John um, to kind of take you through the, the point where he's at, at, you know, Jesus is about to die. And it says, now from the sixth, if you're following me on video, I have this. Um, now from the sixth hour, there was darkness all over the land until the ninth hour. And at about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lemai shabachthani, that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing this said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once drank and ran and, and took a sponge and filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, wait, let us see where Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out with a loud voice, it is finished. It doesn't say that in this translation. That's John 19.30. And then he yielded up his spirit. You're going to have to wait until, um, I, I, I believe in the second part. I just just remember Jesus' last words, it is finished. Uh, and, and behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. The tombs were opened. Many bodies of the saints who were fallen asleep, in other words, they were dead. They were raised. They came out of their tombs after his resurrection. They went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly, this was the Son of God. So there's a lot to unpack there, but just picture, if you will, that if you're at the crucifixion, you don't believe this man is the Son of God, and you're seeing these signs, and including the veil in the temple, uh, just tearing at that time. 
I give you a, a, a little bit of a picture here on video if you're following me. This was a 60-foot high by 30-foot wide crimson and cold, gold, gold, I'm sorry, veil or curtain, however you want to take uh, look at it. It was thick as a man's hand, and it tore in two. Just keep in mind that when they needed to change and clean it because of the the importance of and the rules of you know getting into the the uh, the inner room, the inner sanctuary, they had three hundred men. That's how big and heavy this veil was, and it was cut in two. Um, so a lot of this, I'm going to make the assumption that you know you're you're familiar with this. Uh, Matthew 27, 45 through sixty six is is all of what I am referencing. Um, so when this happened, the next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how the imposter said while he was still alive, After three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead and that fraud uh, that fraud would would be worse than the first Pilate said to them you have a guard of soldiers go make it secure as you can so they went and secured the tomb so let me let me kind of you know cut into a couple of things here first of all the the when, when, when Pilate said you have a guard a Roman guard was a was most people consider 16 soldiers, 16 of the best soldiers, and they they um, they kept guard. They couldn't, and they're keeping watch. They could not fall asleep. You could literally be sentenced to death if you were assigned to to guard. And uh, you know, you basically, the way they looked at it is, you were failing the watch of the ones that you were working with. So the tomb was sealed and. Notice that these, the Sanhedrin and, and, and the Sadducees and the Pharisees, they all were very much aware of what Jesus said. Jesus said, I will, I will die and I will be killed and I will rise on the third day. So they were, you know, kind of trying to make sure that didn't happen. They, so here you have this massive tomb and then you have these guard of centurion gates, uh, centurion soldiers, I'm sorry. So just, you know, kind of keep that in mind because some people will go on to say that they stole the body. And I'll cover a little bit of this here, how, why that is very, pretty much a, a, absurd. Um, let, let me just also go to this piece here. I think this is very, very important. The Apostle Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians. If Christ had not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. So basically, if Jesus Christ did not rise from the dead, he's telling you it's all bets off. So here you have um, one of the most significant uh, um, writers in all of his, uh, all of the, you know the Bible, uh, you know, writing most of the New Testament. Paul is ba- saying right into your face, or the people you know of that of that time, if Jesus did not rise from the dead, then everything that we're doing doesn't matter. So he was, you know, that convinced. And I'm going to go on here in 1 Corinthians 15, uh, 3 through 6. After that, so this is uh, talking about how he's appearing to the, the different uh, witnesses. He appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters, and at the same time, most of whom are still living. So when he's giving this, this is roughly people think this is written three to five years after the death of Jesus. 
Some will go as far as 20 years, but the latest um, evidence has suggests that it's about three to five years after the death of Jesus. So in other words, think of yourself, I'm in 2022, you know, you can go back and say, hey, these people in 2017, we saw this event, and you have all these people who can bear this out, who saw this. I give you examples of others who saw the resurrection, resurrected Jesus, Mary Magdalene, the other women, uh, Cleopas and his companion, the 11 disciples, the 10 apostles, except Thomas, um, the seven apostles, and, and I give you all of the scriptures. And then last, you know, uh, uh, in 1 Corinthians 15, 7 through 8, then he appeared to James. James is his half-brother who did not believe he was the Son of God. And it was only until after he saw the resurrected Messiah that he came to this revelation. And, you know, not, not only that, he was the leader of, of the early church in Jerusalem. So he, he, was, he was instrumental, and if you go to the book of James, there's just such incredible wisdom that oozes. It's one of my favorite books. Um, but, he, you know, he, because he saw the resurrected Jesus, he engaged him. And I, I, I don't know what that conversation was, but, boy, would I love to have been a fly on the wall and heard that. Uh, that would have been some very, very interesting things here, you know, that conversation with his half-brother. Um, but my point here is you've got so many witnesses upon witnesses upon witnesses that saw Jesus. And Paul is even saying, kind of like, go ahead. There's 500 of them that, that can testify to this. They're, most of them are still living. Go ahead and ask them. So in other words, sensing that, uh, you know, people may not, not believe this, you know, he, he's saying, go ahead. I'd like to just something here that for those of you who may not believe, all right, and let, let me just say this that uh, your questions are legitimate. Any question that you have, God is big enough for your questions. If you don't believe that Jesus Christ rose from the dead, seek him out, ask him. Um, the, the, the Jude, has it says, have mercy on those that doubt. I give you the example on video here, if you're following me, of, of Thomas, how Thomas had to see the resurrected Jesus, put his fingers in his side and see the holes. So what I, this is my personal opinion, take your questions, seek answers. The resurrection is the heart of Jesus. It's everything that, that, we're, that we hold so dear and valuable. And if you know the truth and you receive the truth, the truth will set you free. Um, so, you know, I'm, I just wanted to kind of take that side note that, if any of the information I present here, hopefully if you are not a believer, this will make you think or at least start to, you know, look into some of the material. I'm going to give you some good references here if you want to dig a little further. Um, but if you don't know Jesus, it's my suggestion, open up the Gospel of John. Start to read the Gospel of John and go from there. And if you have questions, ask the Lord. But start there. I promise you everything I'm telling you can be uh, verified and bore out. So, you know, I, I just, I, I wanted to kind of get that out there. So let me keep going. Um, I wanted to just show you, I, I've shown this a couple times in the past. Uh, this is a painting that I had a very dear friend of mine uh, paint, beautiful artist. Um, but it was Jesus on trial. And because I always say that, and I've seen this so much e e even lately, um, and it's been kind of disturbing to me, to be honest with you. Even there's a numerous, quote-unquote, Christians or, you know, 
they they don't believe the Old Testament. They they think it's an outdated book and we can't trust it. We can't trust God and blah blah blah. There's so much evidence, they, and they don't look. They say these things so cavalierly, um, and they say there is no evidence, but they never look at it because there's evidence all around that supports the Old Testament writings and the New Testament and the validity of those scriptures. So I, I kind of look at it as, you know, the world will put Jesus on trial. If you are a Christian, you should be able to answer their questions um, and, and if not, you know, be honest. Hey, I don't know the answer to that. Maybe you want to look here or look there. There's so many good resources out there, um, you know, w- whether you want to look at the his- historical aspect of it or, or just some of the things that have happened that we can p- uh, point to that uh, it, it could be occurrences in the earth, occurrences in the heavens, things like that. And we have the, the software now where we can look back in time and see certain things. And then again, looking at records outside of there. But uh, I, I, if I could, just real quick, the reason I, I commissioned this painting the way I did and how she, I just gave her the vision and she came back with it. If you notice the jurors, they're people of all different backgrounds, ethnicities, rich, poor, uh, black, white, Jewish, Muslim, doesn't matter. Um, the truth shall set you free. So, you know, that's why I say if you have questions, by all means, you know, ask the Lord. Uh, he'll, he'll give you those answers. So some people will say that Jesus was a mythological figure. Did Jesus of Nazareth really exist? If he did, what proof was it that he was crucified? There's evidence everywhere that he was crucified. There are 39 ancient sources on top of the New Testament writings that that alluded to the life, crucifixion, and resurrection of Jesus. 39. Ignatius was a church leader in in the early church after the death of Jesus. He was a pupil of the Apostle John, uh, and he lived for 70 years after the resurrection. Before he was martyred, another one that, that, that died for Jesus or died because of his faith, he wrote the following, he was condemned. He was crucified in reality and not in appearance, not in imagination or deceit. He really died, he was buried, and he rose from the dead. So that 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 tells me that, you know, the people of that day had those had those doubters. Um so I, I guess, you know, we are filled with doubters today. We're filled with people today, and that's okay. But if you want to be honest and not just say make blanket statements without looking into it, the the information is is everywhere, and I'm going to touch more on on some of this. Uh, the 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 creed was written five three to five years again. This goes back to First uh, Corinthians, what Paul wrote three to five years after his death. It says this: For I delivered you first. Uh, actually, let me put this on screen for you. Sorry about that. Um, For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by over five hundred at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. After that, he was seen by James, then of the apostles, then the last of all he has seen by me, being Paul, as one uh, born out by, by due time." 2 Peter 1.16, for we do not, we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. So, 
you know, then just, you know, Peter going back saying, uh, you know, we saw this with our own eyes. We experienced this with our own eyes. I'm going to also point to the fact that there's an amazing thing happening in Iran and other parts of the Middle East. And, um, um, well, I, I should, well, I, this is what I do know. In, in Iran and other parts of the Middle East, a lot of predominantly Muslim and Arab nations, Jesus is appearing pretty significantly and numerously in different camps and tribes, and people are coming to Jesus in, in, or coming to accept Jesus and, and confess him as the, his Lord and Savior um, in, in abundance. The fastest growing church today in the world is Iran. And I know that sounds crazy when you think about the Ayatollahs and, and what's happening there. This is a beautiful, rich, wonderful people uh, and, and culture and history. Um, but not only that, but they, they're, they're, they're facing such um, harsh circumstances and being martyred, you know, for their faith. But interestingly enough, that's, that's the largest growing church. And another one is China. So where there's mass persecution, where there's attacks of the enemy, the church is rising. So I, I love this. It's, it's just, it's something to marvel at. But what I'm, what I want to get at here is the resurrected Jesus is the one who's appearing in these visions. It's the one who's appearing to these people in these dreams. Let me give you some historical and archaeological corroboration. Uh, let's see here. We have Cornelius, and again, I have this on video if you, if you want. Um, I've highlighted some of the things that they wrote. Um, Cornelius Tacticus, 55 to 120 AD, he was considered a great uh, historian of ancient Rome. Again, not a Christian. Um, so he reported some things, and I, I give you the highlights. I'm not going to break it all down. Josephus was a Jewish historian. Um, and he was paid, you know, by the Roman Empire. Uh, his writing from Antiquities book uh, that there was, um, I'm, I'm sorry, what was it? The Antiquities book uh, that covers the name Jesus uh, and his followers, the experience and the eventual order of execution by means of crucifixion from Pilate. He further writes about the resurrection and that perhaps he was the Messiah that the prophets wrote about. So again, you know, there, there's somebody outside of the Bible, a well-known and well-respected historian. Uh, Pliny the Younger, uh, he was the Roman governor uh, in northern Turkey. He writes about it. Uh, Suetonius, he was the secretary and historian to... I don't know, I'm sorry, Hadrian, the emperor of Rome from 117 to 138 AD. And I give you, you know, so many things of what they, they wrote here. I give you uh, not only the books, but, but some of the very specific sentences that deal with the um, crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. Uh, the Talmud, the Sanhedrin, 43 AD, uh, these, they have rabbinical accounts of the crucifixion on the eve of Passover and the miracles except they refer to it as sorcery. So interesting choice of words there, but you know that, that just gives you further proof of, of people who b believed and saw the resurrected Jesus, knew about him, you know, wrote about it. And you know, even begrudgingly, I would say that uh, a lot of the, these historians and, and other people of the day, they, they, you know, they, they, they had to say, yeah, this, this was in fact the case. Um, a fabricated story. This is this is 
I think, worthwhile. I call it fake news. What else would you, you know, when you talk about things like this that are not corroborated today? After Jesus died, his followers created a plan to deceive the entire world into believing Jesus is the promised Messiah, the fulfillment of Scripture, and the Son of God who rose from the dead. Consider the disciples were not the fearless liars. On the contrary, these guys were... I'm going to say chicken, you know, they, they, when they ran for the hills, when, when the heat was turned up, you know, there was only one of them there at the crucifixion. Uh, they fled for their lives. Peter denied Jesus three times. You know about that. But once they saw Jesus, they touched him, they spoke with him, they ate with him. They were filled with the Holy Spirit. You know, it's at that point that their lives turn upside down, that their passion just, you know, grows that much further. They're, there's, they basically dropped their lives and everything they were doing for the sake of the gospel. So, what you know, my point here is that these were fragile characters, much like you and me today. You know, we all have our weaknesses, our faults, our deficiencies, but by the grace of God, you know, he, he helps us work things out. And if we recognize our weaknesses, we can turn it into... To, into a strength or into something that can be utilized. Um, <clears throat> so they left their former jobs. Uh, they, they endured hunger, persecution, oppression, abandonment, imprisonment. My, many of them were imprisoned. They, they were tortured to death. And, and we'll get into all the apostles. I'm going to show you some very briefly uh, some very interesting things that they were, they were so sold out because they knew and experienced and lived with Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, that they died for him, um, that that uh, you know they they were willing to do that. I'll, I'll I'll put it that way, and then I wanted to talk about the women. You know the women. I lo- I love the fact that Jesus first appeared to the women. Women were not considered to be credible witnesses. So think about this: if they were you know bringing this fake news, so to speak, out to the world. They, they point to the women who first saw him. They point to the women as the witnesses. Women at the time, unfortunately, were not considered to be credible witnesses. But because that was the truth, and they couldn't hide from the truth, and they weren't ready to run from the truth, much like a lot of people today, you know, they, the truth they, they think is, is subjective to their own interpretation. It's not. It is not. Truth is truth. It's black and white. Um, so here Jesus appeared to these these wonderful, courageous women. And as a matter of fact, if you go to the genealogy of Jesus Christ in Matthew, you'll see four women are in there, you know, which just further solidifies in my eyes how the importance of women and, and that Jesus gave him that that their credibility and that he first chose to go to a woman before a man. So, uh, and again, that goes to the the, the, the fact that it defies anything that you would try to do. If you were trying to fabricate a story, you would not have brought a woman along. So, you know, th- there's that aspect. Uh, real quickly, i just show you the, the, the different uh, martyrs. James, brother of Jesus, was beaten and stoned at 94, had his brains beat out. Peter's brother, Andrew, was arrested and crucified upon arriving at Edessa. Uh, the two ends of the cross were transfixed, uh, were fixed transversely into the ground, hence the name St. Andrew's Cross. Uh, 2,000 Christians were martyred in, two, in 34 AD. Luke was hung to death on an olive tree in Greece. Uh, John was ordered to Rome from Ephesus. 
where he was cast into a cauldron of boiling oil. So this is interesting because John is the only one who did not die, but after he would not, he didn't die. It didn't affect him, the cauldron of boiling oil. So that's how he wound up on the island of Patmos, and we know, you know, writing the book of Revelation there. Uh, James, son of Zebedee, an elder brother of John, was killed under Herod Agrippa. Peter was crucified upside down. He said he didn't want to be crucified the way that Jesus was, didn't think he was worthy. He was taken to Rome for that. Bartholomew was beaten and crucified in India. Um, let's see, Mark was dragged to pieces by the people in Alexandria in front of Serapis, their pagan isle. Matthias was stoned in, in Jerusalem and beheaded. Uh, Thomas was put to death by sword. Uh, in India from pagan priests and, and so forth and so on. And, you know, there's so many different examples there, but we're going to get to uh, one individual who cites this as a, a, a primary reason for evidence that Jesus did rise from the dead. Because here you're talking about people who anywhere from 70 to 100 years later were dying after the death of Jesus. So they, they were so convinced that, you know, that they knew, they saw him, they were willing to, you know, they were willing to lay their lives down just as Jesus laid his life down for us. So, you know, just all the more evidence. And again, John being the only one who was not. I wanted to point out uh, two people who I, I think this is important. And one was a world-renowned atheist at the time, uh, and his name was Simon Greenleaf. Uh, Simon Greenleaf is an interesting study because he was one of the founders of Harvard Law School. He authored the three-volume text, A Treatise on the Law of Evidence, which still is considered the greatest single authority on the evidence in the entire literature of our American United States legal procedure. He literally wrote the rules on evidence from the United States legal system. As an atheist, he accepted a challenge by his students to investigate the evidence for Christ's resurrection. After six years of personally collecting and examining the evidence based on the rules of evidence that he helped establish, Greenleaf became a Christian and he wrote the classic Testimony of the Evangelist. And, and, and it's a wonderful book that you can still get today. Um, and, and here's his one comment that I wanted to bring out. Let the gospel's testimonies be sifted as if it were given in a court of justice on the other side of the adverse party. The witness being subjected to a rigorous cross-examination, the result it is confidently believed will be an undoubting conviction of their integrity, ability, and truth. Uh, just turning next to Sir uh, Lionel Luckhoo, he was a British lawyer from 1914 to 1997. That's, that's when he lived. I shouldn't say he was a lawyer that long. Uh, but he's considered one of the greatest lawyers in British history. He is recorded in the Guinness Book of Records as the world's most successful advocate with 245 murder acquittals. He was knighted by Queen Elizabeth on two separate occasions. Here's his quote on, on the question, did Jesus rise from the dead? This was uh, his response. I humbly, humbly add I have spent more than 42 years as a defense trial lawyer appearing in many parts of the world and am still in active practice. I have been fortunate to secure a number of successes in jury trials, and I say unequivocally, unequivocally, the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ is so overwhelming that it compels acceptance by proof which leaves 
absolutely no doubt or, or absolutely no room for doubt. So, you know, there's two examples um, that, that I think are just so, so very, very important. Um, and then I'm just going to, I just felt this need to say, you know, it's not just what we read in the Bible. It's certainly by faith we have to accept Jesus, but there is an incredible, vast, rich depth amount of knowledge. And let me also say this, that Greenleaf, two things that really compelled him. Uh, one was the 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 um, the martyrs, the people that died, uh, you know, all those people that I just wrote about, and others. And he said, you know, they seventy years. It's one thing, a year, two years. He says seventy years, sixty years later, that was first and foremost, in, or one of the main reasons that, that that he gave. And the other was this. Um, I, I don't have time to break this down, but. If you look at the gospel and when the witnesses first went back in and saw the empty tomb, Jesus was covered in what I would say mummy, mummification cloth. And, and the Jewish people got that at the day. This is all in the scripture. You can get this. And it, it was covered with, with different oils that, as they would do. And you think about it, the Jews would have learned, learned the mummification process from the Egyptians. At, at, at any rate, let's say Jesus is 150 pounds minimum. The estimation of the wrapping material with all the embalming fluid that and you know the 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 oils, the frankincense that they wrapped him in because there was a minimum of additional seventy five pounds could have been as much as three hundred pounds. So, if they were to take him out and carry him away, as some would try to say, he would have been anywhere two hundred fifty minimum to up to three fifty four hundred. They couldn't have done so. They would have beat the Roman guards, knocked them down, moved this massive stone. Remember these weak, crazy—well, not crazy, but weak, frail, scaredy cats—and so they beat the Romans. They moved the stone, and then they carry this man, you know, with this mummified process. But what Greenleaf realized, and and it is—it's in scripture—that. The, the head cloth there, you know, was on the side. And as a matter of fact, it was not folded. And that, that's another piece of evidence. But the, the mummification of the body would have been there, but Jesus would not have been there. So imagine, you know, if you would, a body completely wrapped as a mummy, the head would have been missing because they just carried the cloth and that had to do with nearing the end of the day and Passover. So they, they, that's basically what they walked into and they saw that. So that was another thing that Greenleaf pointed out. And he said, you know, this is amazing, you know, because it's not like the body's not there. There's evidence to still there in the tomb. It's the body is not there, but there's evidence that leaves you to go, how did the body come out of this mummification process? So... Again, that's not really talked about, or I, I have not heard a lot about that. Uh, last on the evidence, Messianic prophecies, a collection of 300 predictions in the Jewish scriptures about the, uh, the, the, the uh, Messiah, the Jewish Messiah. These predictions were written by multiple authors, numerous books, and uh, over approximately 1,000 years. The probability, mathematically, of just eight prophecies being fulfilled with one person is one in one 
or yeah, one in one quadrillion or ten to the ten times ten to the fifteenth power. There you go. Um, and I give you all the zeros. It looks like three, six, nine, twelve, fifteen, eighteen zeros. One with eighteen zeros. Those are the odds. One in that. So and there's over three hundred of them. So that's for eight. So consider one person comes from the line of King David. He's born in Bethlehem, enters Jerusalem in a donkey, betrayed for 30 pieces of silver, crucified, bones will not be broken, buried in a rich man's tomb, rises from the dead. Those are just eight. So mathematically, you know, you just look at it logically and go, Jesus rose from the dead. Uh, And he even predicted it in Mark uh, 8.31. And he says this, and he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. Of all the prophecies concerning Jesus, more than 50 of them were fulfilled by his death and resurrection. So, you know, I, I, I hope I've made my case as far as the, ver- the validity of the resurrection. And it's starting to, and I'm going to wind down with something about what, what I'm setting up something, what, what's going to come up in the next uh, video. Because what happened was Jesus went into the earth. Uh, I'll tell you right now. There, so those three days, and he had different locations in the earth that he needed to go to. And then he came up. There's actually five different locations that, that you can, that happened during these five days. And, and we'll get into that. I'm going to give you just a little bit of a taste before we close this video. Um, so let me go to it. Uh, let's see. Matthew 12, 40. For Je- this is Jesus speaking. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So Jesus is telling you, I need to go into the heart of the earth. That's where I'm going for these three days. I'm going into the earth. Not just die. First uh, Peter three eighteen. For indeed Christ died for our sins once and for all, just and righteous for the unjust and the and, and the unrighteous, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. That's Jesus' spirit, not Holy Spirit. Uh, in which he also went and preached to the spirits in prison. So there's spirits in prison in the earth is where he's going who once were disobedient when the great patience of God was waiting in the days of Noah, referring to the fallen angels, uh, came down on Mount Hebron, and then you had the the offspring uh, as they mated with or married women, um, and that's where you get the Nephilim. Uh, During the building of the ark in which a few, that is eight persons, which is Noah's family, were brought safely through the waters. Uh, I wanted to point out these two things in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Acts 2.27, because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, you will not let your Holy One see decay. Psalm 16.10, because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, nor will you let your faithful one see decay. So, you know, Old Testament, New Testament bearing that out. Uh, so I'm highlighting the word abandon. Abandon in in uh, in Hebrew is za'ah. It is to leave. So if I leave something, I am allowing it to remain where it was. So what Scripture is pointing out here is Jesus is saying, I will not be abandoned. The Father will not leave me here. 
So he's, he's confirming right there, I'm going into the heart of the earth and I'm going into uh, where there is decay, where there is the fallen ones, where there is, the, <coughs> excuse me, uh, the fallen angels and, and, and spirits of men. And, uh, so it, 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 it's basically saying, you know, if, if, if you abandon something, you leave it. And Jesus is saying right there, I will not be abandoned. I will not be left there. So you see it in the Old Testament and the New Testament, which kind of goes to, you know, where I want where I want to land before we close this section up. Where are the dead now? Old Testament, world of the dead is called Sheol or Sheol. There, it's 65 times mentioned. It's translated as grave, hell, or death. This is not the pit. It is not the lake of fire. This is where both believers and unbelievers go after uh, departing this life. The New Testament in Greek refers to this as Hades, and it's mentioned 42 times. So that's a lot. 65 times Old Testament, 42 times New Testament, saying the same thing. Sheol is the Hebrew, Hades is the Greek. Both of these refers to the same temporary place, whereas hell is a permanent abode of punishment that lasts forever. This is also not considered Tartarus. Tartarus is referred to only once, 2 Peter 2.4, defined by biblical scholars as the deepest abyss of Hades. This too is probably temporary. And I, I would agree with that. And you know, we'll, we'll eventually get there on that. I've, I've covered this in past presentations. Uh, then you have Gehenna, which in the New Testament is the permanent place of the dead used by Jesus 11 times and once in James 3.6. Gehenna refers to the Valley of Hinnom just outside Jerusalem where the waste was dumped 24-7 and, and, and it was always burning. Uh, the King James refers to this as hell. So this is the eventual place where everybody who does not accept Jesus will land. But you have Sheol or Hades, so it's in the earth, and then you have another section that's called Tartarus, uh, which is I'll call a lower depth or a lower section uh, for those fallen angels that have been uh, um, placed in captivity there. Uh, so the, the conversely, the NASB calls the temporary places Sheol and Hades, and the final place of the dead is hell. So a lot of times, translations will show you or, or refer to it as hell. Um, I, I would say that you, you really need to separate what these, these things are. Um, Sheol, Hades, and, and I'm going to show you just a little bit of this, and we're going to go really well into this in the next video. Um, and then Tartarus, and then outside of that, you have Gehenna or the Lake of Fire, which is the permanent abode. Then you'll have heaven and paradise, and we're going to cover all of this in the next section because Jesus goes to all these places. It's, it's fascinating, at least I think so. Um, uh, Proverbs 9.18 says, A place where the dead exist. This is Sheol of Hades. This is your different uh, scriptural examples. Uh, Psalm 86.13, a place for the soul. Psalm 9.17, a place for the wicked and those who forget God. Now, this is important. Genesis 44.29, a godly Jacob expected to go there. So here you have a place for the wicked and a godly Jacob. David expected to go there in, in Psalm 88.3 and Psalm 89.48, all men go to Sheol. So you're going to see here, and I'm going to give you the scriptural backing of it and a little bit of a, a visual symbol, 
that Sheol Hades, that there's two sections of it. There's one that would go for the righteous and the believers that in God and the Messiah in the Old Testament, and then you have the ones who, who forsook God. And how, why do I say, oh, let me say this too. But God will redeem my soul from the power of Sheol, for he will receive me. So that's David. So David is expecting to go there. David's saying, God will redeem me. He, he will take me from this place. So where I'm getting all of this is the rich man and Lazarus, uh, Luke 16, 19 through 31. I would contend that this is not um, a, 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 you know, pe- people have laid this out a couple of different ways. The reason I say that Jesus is laying this out in, in, in a real manner is because he refers to someone's name. I do not recall or see any names um, in any of the parables. So in other words, there are some who would say that this is the description is factual, but the characters are not. And I'm, I'm not going to dispute all that. But the reason I say this is e- even more than that because of mentioning Lazarus' name. Um, I don't, you know, I'm not going to go through all of it. Well, let, yeah, let me, let me cover it. It's, it's, now, there was a rich man and they habitually dressed in purple. I should say if you're dressing in purple today, that's a fine linen. It's expensive. You know, it's, it, it, it's a sign that, you know, you've got some wealth. Um, he had fine linen. He was joying himself in splendor and every day. The poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate covered with sores, longing to be fed from the scraps which fell from the rich man's table. Not only that, the dogs were also coming and licking his sores. Now it happened that the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's arms. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, he raised his eyes, being in torment, saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his arms. So the rich man wakes up and he sees Lazarus from afar. Let me see if I can get in camera like that. Um, so just, you know, keep that in mind. And Lazarus, is, uh, the rich man, is in torment. And he cried out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in the water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in these flames. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life you received your good things, likewise Lazarus bad things, but now is being comforted here and you are in agony. And besides this, between us and you, there is a great chasm that has been set for those who want to go over here, and they will not be able, nor will any people cross over to us. So there's a, a chasm. So this whole, you know, Abraham and La- or Lazarus with Abraham and the rich man, and then in between there's this chasm. So there are th- three different compartments, Abraham's bosom, the chasm, and, and, and the place of torment. The present-day church age believer in Jesus does not go to Sheol or Hades. How, why do I say that? We are confident, I say, would prefer to be away from the body is to be at home with the Lord. In other words, to be absent from the body, if you die and you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you're present with the Lord. Jesus is no longer in Sheol and Hades. Jesus is in heaven, is in paradise in his Father's house. So that if we're in the presence of Jesus and we're taken away, we're taken away to, to, to heaven. Um, and then Acts 7.55, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven, saw the glory of God, and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. So, you know, the story of, of, of Stephen is he's being martyred, he's being stoned to death uh, for, for, for speaking his faith and his belief, and he looks up as he's about to die, and he's 
also asking Jesus to forgive them. Kind of, you know, they know not what they do. That's that's how humble Stephen was and how courageous he was. But as he looks up, he sees Jesus at the right hand of the Father, which means, again, Jesus is not in Sheol or Hades. Jesus is in heaven with the Father. So I wanted to just show you that very briefly, real quick, this uh, um, uh, kind of artist depiction. On the left-hand side, you would see what would be Sheol and Hades and that that divider between where they can see one another, but they can't cross one another. And on the right of your screen is just a depiction of what an artist, you know, just believed to be what would be Tartarus or the abyss where today is is below where Sheol and Hades is. Sheol and Hades is still there, so is the abyss, and, and we're going to go cover all of that in the next presentation. Um, but, you know, hopefully that gives you kind of a, a, a good idea. I wanted to set all this in motion for what we're going to be covering in the next part. I'm really going to break down all of the scriptures and how we know where these different compartments, what Jesus did, because there's a very, very incredibly beautiful um, rhythm to everything that he's doing. And I'm going to show you and explain to you some things that I, I, I doubt you've ever heard before that really floored me. I've just learned this as I was studying and preparing for this about just how significant Jesus is as the Lamb of God and our high priest. So hopefully you'll, you'll join me for the next presentation. But listen, thank you so much for your time. Uh, I, I can't say how much I've appreciated and enjoyed. I, I love talking about the Lord. I love talking about his goodness, his grace, his mercy, his truth, his validity. Um, if you have any questions or comments, please email russicoutlook at gmail.com. Be happy to answer them. Any prayer requests, you know, don't hesitate. Uh, I just wanted to thank you and hope to see you when we conclude this section, when we do the part two of the three most significant days in world history. These are the three days that shook the world. We're going to do a deep dive in what exactly happened in those three days. So you've been listening. My name is Mark Russick. You've been listening to the Russick Outlook. And remember, as always, just my opinion.